We've got your Bibles. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're continuing our study on the seven churches of Revelation. And this week we're going to look at the church of Sardis. But I, I like to start us out, remember, in the first part of the text in, for, in Revelation chapter 1. I know I told you to go to Revelation 3, but in the beginning of, of Revelations, it tells us John was on this, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He was in, or on the island of Patmos and he was put away for believing in one God, worshiping one God. And he was put away for that one reason. To solitary confinement and he was on or in the spirit on the Lord's day and Jesus shows up and he says write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches write it to Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia and to Laodicea then I turned and saw the voice that was speaking to me and And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstand was one like the Son of Man, clothed with long robes and with with a golden sash around his chest, and his hair was was white like wool and like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet were burnished bronze. We learned last week what the burnished bronze signifies and what it means. It was refined in the furnace. His voice was like a roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. We'll talk about that today. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And, from his, and his face was like the sun shining at its full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his hands on me and he said, Fear not, I am the first and am the last. And so Jesus is this picture that we see of Jesus in this first part of Revelation chapter 1, is you see Jesus, He's in charge, He is in control, He's sovereign, and John, when he sees Jesus, he doesn't have this reaction of just a, hey, like, like I would see Sam and say, hey Sam, how are you? And shake his hand. Paul, or John falls at his feet as though he was dead, but Jesus utters the best words ever. He says, Don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Jesus tells him, do not be afraid. So this week, we've looked at all the other churches. We've been through Ephesus. We've been through Pergamon. We've been through Smyrna. We've looked at all these churches. And this week, we're going to look at the church of Sardis that's in Revelation chapter 3. And we'll get started um, We'll just start in verse 1 of Revelations 3. And to the angel of the church of Sardis. Now, Pam, what is, what is the angel? Do you remember the angel? It's the pastor. He's just, that's, that's who we're referencing is the pastor. So, to the pastor of the church of Sardis. <laughs> write these words to him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to, then that, that is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis of people who have not soiled their garments. And they 
will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and they will never have their name blotted out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this week we're looking at the church of Sardis. Now, a little bit of history. I like the, I've liked, so far, I've loved to give you guys a little bit of history on each town. Uh, the city of Sardis was liberated f- uh, from the kingdom of Lydia in 340 BC by Alexander the Great. I, I didn't realize that um, Alexander the Great had such a, a big impact in this area, but he did. Um, the city's main industry was actually harvesting wool and dyeing that wool. The city was the center of worship of Artemis, the goddess of the hunt and fertility. So there's that. that, that, that uh, it was a major obstacle for believers, for Christians all over this region. They had multiple gods. This area was, this was the, pri- the primary god was Artemis in this town. But like I said, last week was Apollo and Caesar. and all, There were all these different gods. And this was the obstacle that Christians had was when they stood and said, we want to worship the God, Jesus, the, one, the only way, the truth, and the life. When you stood and said, I only want to worship this God, you'd face opposition a lot of times from so many people. And so John starts in his letter here and he says, with the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So the seven spirits of God is a reference to the lampstands and, and, the, and those seven lamps that are in Zechariah chapter 4. Chapter 4. Um, I'm going to read the first couple of verses of Zechariah 4 for you. It says, Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened me from sleep. So interesting that that is also the beginning idea in Zechariah is the same idea in Revelation chapter 3 where he says, you've got to wake up. Wake up to this. Wake up and see what's happening around you. So the angel comes and wakes Zechariah up. He says, what do you, the angel looks at Zechariah and says, what do you see? He said, I answered, I see a golden lampstand with a bowl. And at the top of the lampstand on it are seven channels to the lamp. And then that angel asked him, do you know what this is? And he says, no, I, I don't know what this is. I'm not sure what it is. And then the angel reveals it to him in, cha- in verse 6. He says, so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but my, by my spirit says the Lord Almighty. So when you read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus is telling John, he's telling the church, it's me. Like, you're seeing me. It's me that you're looking at. I I know this is the one who has the seven spirits of God. It is the only God. The only true God. Seven is a number of completion and perfection. So when you see the number seven, we look at it as just the number seven. We're like six, seven, eight, nine. To, to us in America, numbers don't mean that much. But in Middle Eastern places at times during the Bible, numbers meant things. And seven was the number of completion. And so when God says to the church... This is the words of the one who has the seven spirits of God. He says, it's me. The complete and perfected and holy triune God of the universe. It's me. I'm here. I am the God that you are to worship. So he's making a reference to that, to that, that, uh, 
And he is complete. He's preeminent. He's above all. He's perfect. He is the God of all the universe. And he holds the seven stars. Now, the seven stars are the seven pastors. He holds the seven pastors in his hands. And he is, he is sovereign over all things in the church. This is the, that's what this is. is a reference to God Almighty being the sovereign king of the universe. And he is over the church. He is over all things. He is the sovereign king of the church. And he holds these seven pastors sovereignly in his hand. And then he begins to unpack things. Remember in every letter he unpacks some things that he doesn't like about how the church is doing things. And he, he really does, a, it's a jaw-dropping accusation against the church. It's not, a, it's not a slap on the wrist. This is a jaw-dropping statement in chapter 3, verse 1. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This, this is a jaw-dropping statement. Can you imagine this letter being read to you in the church? It, it gets delivered to the church at Sardis, and they open it up, and they read it, and they say, you've got a reputation of being alive, but God Almighty says you're dead. So if God says you're dead, what are you? You're dead. You're dead. So you've got this reputation, but you're, you're actually dead. This church had so much going on. There's so much happening. It seemed to onlookers that there was... They, this church was really living its best church life now. It was, I mean, it was, it had all kinds of moving parts. It was vibrant. It had activities, events, and, and people thought, man, everyone in this church has got everything figured out. They've got it all together. They've got it all planned out. Look at everyone's doing well. Look at that. The building. They got a building program. They got a. They got a gym. They got. A, man, look at all the stuff they've got. But God said. You might seem alive, but you're not. You're not alive. You've got a lot of moving parts, but you're not alive. You're dead. And, and so many churches in 2020 seem to be alive. They've got all kinds of programs. They've got all kinds of activities. They've got all kinds of um, small groups and Sunday school groups and youth groups and old people groups and young people groups and middle-aged people groups. They've got all these different things that are happening, all these different activities, but some of them are dead as a doornail. They are. And people look at them and say, man, that church is booming. Have you seen like the numbers through that? I mean, it, they've, they've gone through the roof. Now, let me, hear, let me just say this up front. I'm, I'm not... Against programs. I'm not against a growing church. This church is growing. We have, I know today we look around and we're like, growing? There's nobody here. Everybody's sick. So, but overall, this church is growing. That's not a, numbers aren't a bad thing because if you don't have numbers, you don't, you're not going to make an impact. Amen? So I think having numbers is a good thing. But if that becomes your primary motivation, your primary objective is eh, numbers, 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 do whatever we can to get people in here, and we just cast away. The, the scriptures and we don't really pay attention to the scriptures that's a problem if a church is booming but yet it's not founded upon the word of God we've got a problem we've got a real problem so I want you to hear that I'm not against programs I'm not, I'm not against gyms or activities but they can sometimes replace the actual pursuit of Jesus Christ and this is what was happening at the church of Sardis they had all the activities all the things that were going they were they seemed alive, but they were dead. 
It was a man-centered church. It was a church that was more concerned with people being happy in the pews rather than, being, rather than pursuing the God of that church. And programs can't replace an actual relationship with Jesus. And that's dangerous. Like there, there are pastors that replace an actual vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ for ministry. And that's a dangerous place to be. You, you cannot replace, you cannot have a program to replace an actual relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus makes a similar statement in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. You outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead men's bones all, and all uncleanness. So you are outwardly appearing righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, let me just tell you, this, this passage is the passage that God used in my own personal life to convict me of where I had fallen short. My dad's a pastor. I've been in church for 40, be 42 years, the end of this month. Um, I, I've been in church my whole life. And... I knew how to, I mean, I, I, I did what these little kids did. I sang the songs. I went to Sunday school. I was a part of youth group. I went to camp. I did all the things you're supposed to do. I looked like I had everything figured out. I looked like I had everything going right in my life. But in reality, the Holy Spirit, when I read, when that verse was preached, that listen, you fair, I was a Pharisee. I was a religious lost kid. I was in high school, I was a part of Bible club, I was in a Christian band, I did all the things I was supposed to do that looked Christianese in, in my high school years. But I had never realized and taken into account my own personal sin. I had never realized my sin was what nailed Christ to the, to the cross. When I heard Jesus died for the sins of the world, I just took that as a broad statement. I was like, okay, amen, yes. And I pray, God, I don't want to... Who wants to go to hell? Well, nobody wants to go to hell. Who wants to go to heaven? Everyone wants to go to heaven. If you want to go to heaven and miss hell, pray this prayer. So I prayed the prayer, God, please come into my heart and be this Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. There was no regret of my sin. There was no, there was no sadness in my heart over the brokenness of my condition. There was no desire to want to see God manifest in my heart. There was no hunger. As Matthew chapter 5 says, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I, I just wanted to miss hell and get to heaven. It was a contractual relationship. Jesus, I'll do this, you do that. And that's the mistake we make in the church world is, is making a contractual relationship with God. We do not need to make a contractual relationship with God. God deserves our worship even if we get hell at the end of it. Period. Thank God we don't, but that's, that's what he deserves. He deserves us worshiping him regardless. But this, this verse really struck home to me. Woe to you Pharisees who look like whitewashed tombs. You've got all the flowers on the outside. You're beautifully kept. You're manicured. You've got everything looking right on the outside. But on the inside, you're dead. You're dead. So Jesus continues in verse 2. He says in, in Revelation Wake up! Wake up and strengthen what's, what remains and is about to die. 
For I have found, or I have not found your works to be complete in the sight of God. So he says, wake up. Wake up, remember. And then he goes into verse 3 and says, remember then what you've received and keep it and repent. And if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief in the night and I will, you will not know the hour against which I come against you. So Jesus brings up something that feels and seems a little strange in verse 3. He says, if you don't wake up and repent, I'll come like a thief. Now, some people maybe scratch their head and be like, what is that? What are you talking about? Come like a thief. What does that mean? Well, the people in Sardis knew what that meant. If you did a little history, if you do a little history of Sardis, it was a fortified city and King Cretius, the king of Lydia, who ruled Sardis from 595 to 560, he built this city in like a little knob. I, I, look, I watched this video of where it, the historical place of where it is. There's this knob and the city was built around this knob and behind the knob was this fortified city. And this is where King Cretius built this impenetrable fortress. And he did it to keep his wealth safe and to keep himself safe. It was a strong, strong city. It was impenetrable. Cyrus came and attempted to take the city. But he couldn't. Okay, Cyrus came and, and, and he couldn't figure out how to, how to take the city out. So he, he sieged the city. Cyrus met, built a, a thing around the city and they sieged it with all their armies. They said, we'll just wait you out. That's what we'll do. We'll just wait you out. And he took all of his soldiers and they laid siege to the city. But one evening, there was a soldier that was on top of the wall of the city. And leaned over and was looking. This is... I was, this was a historical. Leaned over the, the edge of the wall and his helmet fell off of his head and went down below. Well, it was, it was late and that soldier went down and there was a secret passageway. He opened that door and grabbed his helmet and came back in. One of the soldiers saw this in Cyrus's army, told Cyrus. Cyrus said, okay, great, let's do this. Let's go around to the other side of the city and we'll make a ruckus over here. Watch the left hand. Don't pay attention to what the right hand's doing. Watch the left. Everybody's, so the whole city's focused on that. And everybody's got all the, King Cretius has got all of his forces focused on Cyrus's army on the front. When in reality, Cyrus said, okay, I'm going to send my elite troops in. We're going through the back door. And like a thief, they, he came in and they took the city out. This is what Jesus is referencing. It's this picture. I'll come like a thief. I'll sneak into the back door and I'll take you won't even know. I'll take you out like a thief and you won't even know it and I'll destroy you. That's exactly what happened to King Cretius's kingdom. He wasn't paying attention. He wasn't. He was arrogant. He thought he had it all figured out. I got all the stuff I need. I've got everything set up the way I want it set up. We're good to go. We're good to go. And his elite forces went through the back, hidden secret door, and took him out. The church thought that they were safe. The church thought that everything was going right. They thought everything was good with them. And then all of a sudden, they didn't even realize that they were in danger. God says, listen, he gives them a warning. He doesn't actually take them out of the beginning. He gives them a warning. He gives them an opportunity to repent. He says, look, I've given you this opportunity. Wake up and strengthen what remains, what's dying. Strengthen that and repent. He tells them to wake up. 
This is why what I'm so concerned with with the church in 2020 is that when and if we are confronted with sin in our own lives, my fear is that some of us, we just take it haphazardly and we look at the issues in our lives and we make no action plans to move forward to repent. So many people just, they get offended when you present sin to them. Oh, I'm in sin. Well, I'll just go, you know, I'll just, I'll go over to that church. They won't talk about my sin over there. I can go and sit down and be quiet and move on. It's not a big deal. We get offended and don't want to come back. Others will come back, but they'll just sit with their arms folded and wait for 12 and leave, having nothing changed in their lives. They're moving and they're walking around like they're alive, but in reality, they're dead. They're dead as a doornail. Over the last several years, there was a TV show that I've sort of kind of been a fan of. My wife's not, but I have been a fan of The Walking Dead. Any other people? Any? No? Sam, you're not a fan? Pam? Pam's a f- Are you a fan? Oh, I thought Pam was like giving me a shake of a, yeah, I was. I was. I like The Walking Dead. It was, you know, it's a good zombie flick. But, uh, <laughs> this, I mean, this is, uh, this is what the, the picture of a person that refuses to repent of their sins. I mean, think about if you ever watched the, the, the previews, if you've ever watched the show, I mean, they, they look alive, they're moving, they're making noise, they look nasty, but they're moving. And there was even a, a, one episode where they sort of kind of di- dissected the brain of one of these zombies and showed on a computer how there was like a one kind of spark, but it wasn't a spark of life, but it was just a, sort of kind of this thing that they had an impulse to move. It's an incredible picture of the church or the person that refuses to repent of their sins. They may look alive, but in reality, they're dead. And sometimes, if you hang around these people long enough, they're going to end up sucking the life out of you. <laughs> Ever been around some of those folks? They suck the life out of you. Jesus tells this dead church to wake up and repent. Wake up! This is a calling for us in 2020. This is a calling for this church. This is a calling for every church that hears this and reads this. It's to wake up and repent. You say, well, I don't need to repent. I'm good. Well, then I guess you're better than I am because I guess what? I need to repent. Anybody else? <laughs> I need to repent. How many of us were perfect this week and had no sin issues in our lives? Tyler, you're far from. Okay, I'm just checking because... Kylie was getting ready to call you a liar. So, Oh, well, she was going to let you. Okay, fair enough. But that, this is what the calling is, is to wake up. This, this is our calling. And if we're sitting here in the pews just like zombies, we need to wake up. God's given us the power of His Word in front of us. And he says, listen, wake up. Wake up. And then he, but then he remember, he sandwiches the, the good in the, in the end of it. you got some good in the beginning, bad in the middle, good at the end. Jesus continues, he says, not all of you are like this. Not all of you. You've got some of you who are actually living, and those who are alive, they will walk with me. Let's keep reading there, verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They, these people, will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. (gasps) 
Why are they worthy? Because they've been obedient to what God's laid before them. They said, okay, God, I'll follow you. I'll be obedient to you. I'll do what you've called me to do. Even if it's not popular, I'm going to follow you. And then they, they do what they're called to do. They do what they're supposed to do. And one of the, the one who conquers, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life and I will confess him before my father and before his holy angels. So Jesus continues, he says, you, you've got some that are living. And if you conquer and you remain steadfast, you'll be clothed in white robes and you'll be, wor- and you'll be worthy. You'll be worthy. And you will not have your name blotted out. And I'll confess to you. I think of Luke chapter 9. You guys want, I, don't, I want to read this to you because I, I was reading this and I thought, man, this is, this is such a great picture. Luke chapter 9, verse 20, 26. I'm looking it up just like you are. So if you've got your Bibles, go over there to Luke chapter 9, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory with his Father and his holy angels. But I tell you truly, truly, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Like this is like there's this, this picture and this, this idea in Revelation chapter 3. Those that conquer, those that stay steadfast, those that are obedient to the word of God, you will not be blotted out of the, out of the, out of the Lamb's book of life. Rather, your name will be concretely placed in there and you will walk with me and I will not be ashamed of you and I will confess you before my Father and I will confess you before my holy angels. The sign of a true believer is that they were quick to repent. A sign of a believer, one who follows Christ, is one who is quick to repent of their sins, quick to say, I don't want to follow after my own lusts, my own desires. They won't harbor sin up in their lives. They're quick to get rid of it. They don't come to gatherings like this and sit unmoved by the things of God. Rather, they are longing to know and pursue holiness and Jesus Christ. So this morning, the question I have for us today is, is the repentance that needs to take place in your life. And if so, what's stopping you from repenting? What's holding you back? Is, is it embarrassment? That God might, oh, God might find out. Uh, newsflash, God already knows. <laughs> you can't hide your sin from God. God knows that you're sinful and he came after you anyways. Um, I was given this book of sermons by my wife as a gift uh, Spurgeon's volumes of this is just one volume of Spurgeon's sermons uh, this is volume three through four and it's just you know almost 500 pages of sermon notes and I read this in the idea of repenting listen this is from Spurgeon has God put it into your heart there are many who have been running away for a long time now. Does God say return? That's a question mark. Oh, I bid you to return. For surely as ever thou dost return, he will take thee in. There's never been a poor sinner yet who Christ has turned away. If he turns you away, you will be the first. Oh, if you could just try him. Ah, sir, you say. I am so black and filthy and so vile. Well, come along with you. 
You are no blacker and no viler than the prodigal. Come to your father's house, and surely as he is God, he will keep his word. Him that cometh unto me, I will not cast out. Like, I I love that. Oh, you say, I'm a sinner. And so is everybody else. Come. What's holding you back from repenting? What's holding you back from coming to Christ and saying, God, I'm, I'm sorry that I've put other things in front of you. I'm sorry that I've worried. I'm sorry that I've done these things. Embarrassment? God knows. God knows everything about you. And he still is being merciful and showing his grace to you in this very moment and giving you the opportunity to repent. Like, God is giving you, just like the church of Sardis, room to repent. Well, I don't, I don't need to, Caleb. Well, that, you're better than I am because I do. I'm the pastor of this church and I need to repent daily. Sometimes, hourly. Help me. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay. Well, that, that's the question I have for us this morning. Is, as, we end this, as we end this sermon this morning... Well, is there a place and a time that you need to repent? Is there a time that you just need to pray and lay and say, oh, I don't, well, Caleb, I don't like to get up in front of people. I don't, I, I'm, a, I'm a little nervous getting in front of folks. Jesus says, those that are ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of them before the, my Father and His holy angels. But those that say said fast, Luke said it, Mark said it, John and Revelation said it, I will not be ashamed of those that are unashamed of me. So my, my hope for us this morning is that we would not be nervous about what might how people might find out. That could be some of the best things. That could be some of the best news for you. I heard a guy say one time, one of the best things that we could have as Christians is to have our deepest, darkest sins thrown up on a screen right here for everybody to read so that all we have to lean on is Christ. Because in reality, that's all we have to lean on anyways. Amen? Amen? Well, that, that's my hope for us is that we would not be, that we would take this seriously. And the God's laid this out and says, wake up, wake up. Don't, don't be, don't be slumbering. Don't fall asleep. He's not cast anyone out yet. Those that have come to him and, and repented, he's never, not, not you. I know you repented, but nope, you're out. You'd be the first. You'd be the first that's been pushed away by God. If you come to him in humbleness and repentance, he will take you in. Isn't that, that's good news, amen? That's glorious news. So as we end this morning, I just want us to think on that. And if you're here and you say, man, I need to repent, spend some time in prayer. I'm not going to have an altar call and have you come forward and sign a pledge card, but I am going to put the onus on you. If you're going to repent, do it. And then tell someone, hey, pray for me. Pray for me. I need you to come alongside me and hold me accountable. Help. And someone will. Let's pray. You guys can stand with me.